This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia. This is episode number 13. My name is Camden Busey, and today we are continuing our series on J. Gresham Machen. Dr. Daryl Hart teaches a lesson entitled The Fight Against Sentimentality at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Here is Dr. Hart. Good morning. Um, We are in the ninth week of this uh, series on J. Gerson Machen and um, his battles. And here's a uh, handout to sort of give an outline for this, uh, this week. Uh, this is the um, last of the weeks on the fights that he engaged in. And this one, as you can see from the outline, is entitled The Fight Against uh, Sentimentality, um, which may seem like an odd thing to fight. But uh, as you may see, I hope by the end of today's lesson, uh, there was plenty of sentimentality going on in the Presbyterian Church in Machen's day. Um, so we're almost to, to the end of Machen's life here, uh, and I will spend the next several weeks um, looking at the, the sources by which Machen conducted this fight, looking at his, his understanding of Scripture and his understanding of the creed or the confession of faith and catechisms, and then also at his understanding of church polity. Um, but just to sort of... Uh, highlight where we've been. We saw Machen's fight against liberalism with his book, Christianity and Liberalism, published in 1923. Um, We looked some at the uh, controversy at Princeton Seminary and its reorganization, which led to the founding of Westminster Seminary in 1929. Uh, Last week, we looked at the um, controversy over foreign missions, which was an unexpected controversy in some ways. Um, but the, the publication of the book, Rethinking Missions, um, sort of reignited the conflict over liberalism in the Presbyterian Church. And that led Machen to eventually to try to reform the, uh, in, the, the Board for, for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. And when that failed, he founded the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, which then led to the mandate of 1934 which basically was the Presbyterian Church's ruling that the independent board was unconstitutional and illegal and also um, issued directives to the presbyteries to bring members of the independent board to trial. And so last week we, cu- we looked some at Machen's trial in 1935 where he was convicted of breaking his ordination vows, violating his ordination vows on six counts. And... Um, and, eventually, and suspended from the ministry of the church as well as excommunicated from the church. Now, he would appeal that decision to uh, 1936. And if I had remembered when making up the outline, I would have put in the fight against sentimentality, parentheses, 1936, because that's the date uh, that we are looking at primarily uh, today. Um, so he would appeal the decision of the Presbyterian of New Brunswick 
that convicted him of violating his ordination vows to the General Assembly of 1936. Um, and if you know Machen's date, uh, dates, you know that he died on January 1st, 1937. So Machen's running out of time, and we're running out of time with Machen. Um, so he only has roughly six more months to live, one, although he didn't, knew, he didn't know that, when he makes this appeal to the General Assembly. Um, so I want to start off by introducing um, or re- recalling what, what I read to you last week, which I have printed on the handout, which is um, part of the report of the General Assembly of 1933 on foreign missions. They had a, they had a report responding to the overture that Machen had drafted uh, and that was sent um, to the General Assembly by the Presbytery of Philadelphia. Um, and the General Assembly responded in about six points, and the point four here is, is reprinted on your outline. It says, the General Assembly recognizes the right of any and all individuals in the church to present criticisms of the program and work of any and all individuals or agencies which represent the church in her various enterprises. The Assembly, however, deplores the dissemination of propaganda calculated to break down faith in the sincerity of such representatives. And I, and I um, called attention a little bit last week to sincerity, but I want to say more about that today. And then it, it goes on to read, the Assembly would remind every constituent of the Church that there are orderly methods of procedure whereby through the established Church courts all such representations ought to be made. The assembly disapproves all methods of approach which would contravene such orderly methods, but would remind the church that in both that both in the common law of the land and certainly in Christian charity, a man must be held innocent until he is proven guilty of any charge, and that suspicion of motives is not adequate evidence against any man and certainly ought not to be used in the Christian church. Again, the irony here is that the, they're saying that anyone has, is innocent until proven guilty, and one of the things that's indicated in Machen's trial was that he was actually guilty and, and then proven guilty, but, but that's not what I want to get into. I want to get into these, these words that are, uh, of sincerity and motives, sincerity in the first paragraph and um, motives in the second paragraph. Um, these are important words, it seems to me, for under, trying to understand the Presbyterian controversy. Um, it, it's not clear to me at all, and yet this is a charge repeatedly made throughout the 20s and 30s, that conservatives were questioning the sincerity of other Presbyterians. And that's not at all the case. They weren't questioning their sincerity. They were saying, conservatives were saying that liberals were wrong, and you could even be sincerely Wrong. It's like if you know the novel Moby Dick, Quiqui goes through this rationalization where he 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 basically says he will worship the little idol of his fellow shipmate out of love for neighbor. He sort of goes through this love of God, love of neighbor, and how he can justify worshiping an idol. He does it sincerely. So blasphemy and idolatry can be done sincerely with the best of intentions and still be blasphemy and idolatry. So sincerity isn't the issue. And motives also were not the issue. Machen wasn't questioning anyone's motives. 
In fact, most of our motivations are generally private. Unless you read a forward to a book that says, this is my intention, you don't really necessarily know what someone's motives are. Um, So Machen and other conservatives in their criticisms of liberalism were saying that statements and actions were wrong. It's not a question of the motivations. Again, the motivations may have been good, sound, admirable, but the words or actions could still be wrong. And Machen did not presume to know anyone's motives, and yet a lot of people presume to know Machen's motives, ironically. So the point here is that sincerity and and, uh, motives are subjective. They're hidden. Again, they can't be proven unless somebody actually says, this was my motivation or this was my intent. Um, and, and only then can you actually talk about whether what someone's personal, private motivation might be. And this means that these, this, the language of sincerity and motivation is in the realm of feelings and sentiment. So that's where we get to sentimentality. Sentiment is a legitimate and valuable human emotion. Um, I have great sentiments for the Phillies, and after last night, even more so. Um, Some of those sentiments are not based on reason, which is what it means to be, to have a sentiment. Um, the, the, The current team, I would argue rationally, is quite is quite worthy of a lot of respect and affection because it seems to be like a really interesting collection of guys with a lot of talent, minus their terrible performance in New York City uh, last week. And so it's objectively, they're good and it's easy to be impressed by them. But I also have a lot of sentiments attached to the Phillies which come from my first encounter with the green turf of Connie Mack Stadium, the white uniforms and those red caps when I saw them as an eight-year-old. And that huge Longines clock in Connie Mack Stadium over the right, right field scoreboard. So, and that's sentiment. <clears throat> and that's okay to have as well, although it's not good necessarily to try to reason with somebody if the Phillies are a better team because of my sentiment for the Phillies. So what is the difference between sentiment and sentimentality? Sentim- sentimentality is valuing something more, putting more of your feelings or emotions into it than it is actually worth. Like giving more emotional attached attachment then it is appropriate. So being sentimental about the Phillies would mean that I love the Phillies as much as I love my wife. And that would not be appropriate. You don't love a team the way you love a spouse. So um, a disproportionate outpouring of sentiment to an object is sentimentality. And I would argue that the General Assembly was engaged in sentimentality when it was saying what it did, particularly in this report that we've just read paragraphs from. But I'd also say that throughout the 1920s, the PCUSA, many of its declarations and reports were based much more out of a sentimental regard for its history and tradition and identity than it was out of an actual kind of reasoned appropriation of what that heritage and identity Meant. And so it put its own identity on a pedestal and tried to protect, protect that identity from all criticism and ironically, in the process, questioned the motives and the sincerity of the critics of the church. So the church was rife with questions about sincerity, motivation, and sentimentality. And I would even go farther and say 
that liberalism itself, liberal Protestantism, was sentimental. It is sentimental about Christianity. It is attached sentimentally to the Christian faith in ways that don't regard properly the Christian truth, what Christianity claims about God, man, sin, etc., Christ and his salvation. Liberals loved, they were sentimentally attached to being Christians, but they didn't know anymore what it meant to be a Christian. So they changed Christianity in order to retain their, their attachment to Christianity. And so I want to start off with looking at Machen's critique of sentimentality. And um, one way of doing this is to back up and look at a book that I haven't really mentioned much in this course, which is... Um, the book What is Faith, which was published by Machen in 1925. And uh, it's important to see that when Machen wrote Christianity and Liberalism, his, his ma- ma- major point in that work was to say that liberalism was unchristian. It was a different religion. So that's one part of his, his attack on liberalism. The second part of his attack was to say that liberalism was anti-intellectual. And that's what he tried to do in this book, what is faith. Therefore, you could, by implication, say that it was much more about sentimentality or sentiment or feeling. And in fact, the great father of, of uh, liberal Protestantism, Friedrich Schleiermacher, very much located Christianity and the Christian faith in the feelings or in the sentiment and tried to get it out of the realm of knowledge and uh, thought. And so Machen was trying to make this case in this book um, uh, what, is, what is faith? And I'll just read a few excerpts from it, um, starting off with the introduction. The question, what is faith, which forms the subject of the following discussion, may seem to some persons impertinent and unnecessary. Faith, it may, it, it may be said, cannot be known except by experience. And when it is known by experience, logical analysis of it and logical separation of it from other experiences will only serve to destroy its power and its charm. The man who knows by experience what it is to trust Christ, for example, to rest upon him for salvation, will never need, it may be held, to engage in psychological investigations of that experience, which is the basis of his life. And indeed, such investigations may even serve to destroy the thing that is to be investigated. Such objections are only one manifestation of a tendency that is very widespread at the present day the tendency to disparage the intellectual aspect of religious life. Religion, it is held, is an ineffable experience. The intellectual expression of it can be symbolical, merely. The most various opinions in the religious sphere are compatible with a fundamental unity of life. Theology may vary, and yet religion may remain the same. And liberalism was often saying that the creeds, and the, and the confessions of the church were based merely on sentiment or feelings, and it didn't matter what the content of those creeds were so much as they were all coming from a Christian experience and a genuine Christian experience of some kind. Machen goes on, Obviously, this temper of mind is hostile to precise definitions. Indeed, nothing makes a man more unpopular in the controversies of the present day than as insistence upon definition of terms. Anything, it seems, may be forgiven more readily than that. Men discourse very eloquently today upon such subjects as God, religion, Christianity, atonement, redemption, faith, but are greatly incensed when they are asked to tell in simple language what they mean by these terms. 
They do not like to have the flow of their eloquence checked by so vulgar a thing as a definition. And so they will probably be incensed by the question which forms the title of these lectures. In the midst of eloquent celebrations of faith, usually faith contrasted with knowledge, it seems disconcerting to be asked what faith is. And then Machen goes on to talk about the anti-intellectual tendency of the modern world, and then he finally gets in his introduction to saying what the book is about. Over against this anti-intellectual tendency in the modern world, it will be one chief purpose of the present little book to defend the primacy of the intellect, and in particular to try to break down the false and disastrous opposition which has been set up between knowledge and faith. So that's the point of the book, Machen trying to emphasize the, the intellectual aspects of faith. And just to give you one example of how he, he pursues this, his second, his second chapter is called Faith in God. And so he begins to put some content into what this thing, faith, means. The, in the first place, the Bible certainly tells us that faith involves a person as its object. We can indeed speak about having faith in an impersonal object, such as a machine, but when we do so, I think we are indulging in a sort of personification of that object, or else we are really thinking about the men who made the machine. At any rate, without discussing the correctness or incorrectness of this usage, we can say at least that such a use of the word stops short of the highest significance. In the highest significance of the word, the significance in which, we, in which alone we are now interested, faith is regarded as being always reposed in persons. The persons in whom, according to the Bible, faith is particularly to be reposed are God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But, and here we come to the point which we think ought to be emphasized above all others, it is impossible to have faith in a person without having knowledge of the person. Far from being contrasted with knowledge, faith, faith is founded upon knowledge. That assertion runs counter to the whole trend of contemporary religious thinking, but a little reflection, I think, will show that it is indubitably correct and that it must be applied specifically to the objects of Christian faith. So he goes on then to talk about faith in God and what doctrine of God teaches and how, if we're going to have faith in God, how it requires some knowledge of who God is and how he's revealed himself, etc., so that's one aspect of this fight against sentimentality. Machen was critiquing liberalism for being anti-intellectual and implicitly sentimental about faith and Christianity. And so his critique of sentimentality goes all the way back, even to the to 20s, when he's critiquing liberalism. Now, secondly, the second point on, on the outline has to do with the evangelical Presbyterians. And this is a really important point seems to me and my own reflection on the controversies of the 20s and 30s. Machen's biggest opponents throughout the 20s and 30s were not liberals, but they were evangelicals. And specifically, the two chief evangelical Presbyterians with whom he did battle were Charles Erdman and Robert Speer, whom I believe were guilty of a kind of sentimental Christianity. And I do think sentimentality and evangelicalism go around a lot together because... At the same time that Schleiermacher was emphasizing the feelings and experience in, in Christianity, so too people like Edwards and Whitfield were also emphasizing uh, the importance of experience and affections, at least, if not feelings. And I know Edwards wrote a massive work on religious affections, but it still does go a long way toward 
locating the essence of faith in the interior life, in the subjective experience in some ways. And, and that, that can be a, a dangerous move unless it's always tied to um, a high view of scripture, a confessional tradition, as well as uh, doctrine of the church. So Erdman, um, not to be associated with the, the publisher in Grand Rapids called Erdman's, and that Erdman's has two E's in it. So this Erdman was not Dutch as I know it, at least not in recent uh, origin. Erdman, who was born in 1866 in New York, the son of William J. Erdman, and William J. Erdman was a, a lieutenant in one of uh, Moody's revival campaigns. So uh, William Erdman was very much associated with the revivalism of, of Moody and uh, Charles Erdman had great regard for Moody, in fact, wrote a biography of, of, of Moody. Um, he, went, he studied at the College of New Jersey, Princeton University, and then studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. And when he was ordained in, in, in 1891, he was ordained in the Presbytery of Philadelphia and served at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for six years, and then at First Presbyterian Church in Germantown, for 10 years before he was called to the faculty at Princeton Seminary to teach practical theology. Um, he also served as the moderator, as we, we, you may recall, in 1925, and was infamous for appointing this special commission of 1925, which basically whitewashed the, the uh, liberalism in the church. Um, and according to the Wikipedia website on Urban, Urban was a major voice for tolerance toward deviation from the Westminster Standards in opposition to J. Gresson Machen, which led to the reorganization of Princeton Seminary and some faculty to break off from Princeton to form Westminster Theological Seminary. So in some cases, Wikipedia gets it right. And I didn't write that paragraph, uh, but um, Erdman was a major voice for tolerance. Um, and... Um, he was, he was a major opponent of, of uh, Machen's, and um, uh, I, don't, I don't think I have the statement here, um, unfortunately. I think I left it at home in my, in my haste this morning. But there, there, was, um, there was a series of, of, of uh, episodes at Princeton Seminary, which led to the uh, investigation at Princeton Seminary, which led to its reorganization. And the chief antagonists were, um, were Erdman and uh, Machen. And, and Erdman repeatedly took, personal, took personally Machen's criticisms of things that, that Erdman was doing. And as a sidebar to this, um, as you may recall, Machen's sermon at the end of 1923, while he was stated supply at First Church Princeton, um, that was publicized throughout the church because Henry Van Dyke, uh, resigned his pew at the church and held a, and sort of issued a press release that was also well publicized throughout the nation. Um, the person who replaced Machen as the state of supply of First Church Princeton was none other than Charles Erdman. And when Erdman returned, I mean, excuse me, when Van Dyke returned to his pew at First Church, um, the, the the magazine in Philadelphia called the Presbyterian, a publication that started in 1820 and ran until as a conservative voice in the church, at least until 1930, ran a little editorial that said, hmm, what's this Van Dyke returning to First Church Princeton when Erdman's the preacher? Um, and so Erdman got really 
ticked about this and thought that Machen was the one behind the editorial because Machen was on the editorial board. And so Erdman said some things that made it seem as if Machen's motivation, that Machen was behind the editorial and that Machen's motivation was out to get him. Um, and so this was one of a series of controversies that was playing out sort of in the sidelines of the Presbyterian Church. Another one had to do with Erdman had been the student advisor or the faculty advisor to a student group. And the students uh, voted him out and, and replaced him with a conservative. Erdman also thought that Machen was behind that and, and, and said some things publicly. Machen was well-connected with the Presbyterian brass. And so a lot of, um, so, so well-connected that he, he could become voted moderator in 1925. So Erdman was repeatedly um, questioning Machen as a source of these things and taking it personally. And one of the great, great ironies is that in 1924, Erdman was also a candidate for moderator of the, pres of the General Assembly. The person who became moderator was Clarence McCartney, who was a conservative Presbyterian pastor then at Arch Street Presbyterian Church. He was also on the, on the board of directors at Princeton Seminary. And Machen wrote an essay, at least one, saying what a great selection McCartney would be. Well, Erdman again took this personally, that Machen was attacking him because Machen was favoring McCartney. And it, it sort of, well, how could, so if Machen had favored Erdman, then McCartney would have taken it personally. I mean, that was sort of the dynamic that Erdman saw going on in, the, in these controversies. So the, the, the statement I had wanted to read to you that I forgot at home in my haste, or at least I left downstairs in my bag, is, was that Machen had to explain his opposition to Erdman. And he explained to the committee that investigated Princeton Seminary between 1926 and 1927 that it wasn't personal, that he held, he held Erdman in high regard as a colleague, but that he opposed his plan, his actions within the courts of the church, particularly appointing the special commission and his, his position of being doctrinally indifferent, indifferent that was... That was the repeated phrase that Machen used, doctrinal indifferentism. Erdman was indifferent to the doctrinal matters before the church, which is actually true. Now, does that mean that, that Erdman was necessarily a mean, bad guy? It doesn't necessarily mean that, but he was on the wrong side of the issues, at least from Machen's perspective and from other conservatives. So Machen tries to give this account and felt even compelled to devote oh, a, length, a lengthy part of this statement to explaining why he was a critic of Erdman, because Erdman had been taking this so personally. But again, Erdman was an evangelical and a so-called conservative in the Presbyterian Church. In fact, Erdman was also an editor of the, pamphlet, of the pamphlet series called The Fundamentals, which some people think is where the term fundamentalism came from. I don't, I don't think that's actually the case, but The Fundamentals were an effort to defend the fundamentals of the faith Erdman was attached with that endeavor. So Erdman was, in many accounts, regarded as a conservative. And yet, um, uh, on, on, on the issues before the church in the 1920s, he was, um, he was on the wrong side. And Machen had to go a long way to try to account for that. Um, just one other kind of little side note here. Um, uh, my good friend John Meather... Uh, his father was studied at um, Princeton University physics in the 50s. And he met his wife during that time, and they were married at the chapel. 
at Princeton University. And the person whom they had conduct their, um, their ceremony was none other than Charles Erdman. So the Mether marriage was conducted by Charles Erdman. I don't know that that says good things about the historian of the OPC. Um, <clears throat> and in, in other company, I say even worse things about, about this questioning legitimacy of John's birth. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so that's, that's Erdman. Now, the other person that Machen went up against, another very popular figure, and a, a conservative figure, again in this kind of evangelical way, who was greatly reassuring to a wide swath of people in the Presbyterian Church, was Robert Speer. And his dates are almost the same as far as the birth date as Erdman. He was born in 1867. He came from Huntington, Pennsylvania, graduated from Phillips Academy, and then went to Princeton University and studied briefly for a year at Princeton Theological Seminary. He was also a college football star in an age when college football was the dominant sport in America, not just colleges, and when the Ivy Leagues were really important, uh, back in the day when University of Chicago even had an outstanding football team. Um, so he was, and he was a star as a tackle of all things, but you could be a star and, and play any di different position. So he had great charisma, athletic ability, very handsome man. In 1925, even though he was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, he was in Christian Century Mag Christian Century Magazine had top 25 preachers in America, and he was listed as one of them, even though he wasn't a pastor. Um, he, so he served on the, um, the Presbyterian Foreign Missions Board for most of his career, published many uh, popular books, um, and he was the one whom Machen had to debate in 1933 with the cri crisis over foreign missions, and um, again, Machen may have been politically um, unwise to go up against Speer because of, of Speer's popularity, but it also suggests um, how much Speer really was the problem um, and another kind of, another expression of doctrinal indifferentism. Now, in this, again, this very fine collection of uh, essays by J. Gresson Machen, there's a review of one of Speer's books um, and I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from that to give you a flavor of uh, Machen's criticisms of Speer. The book that he is reviewing is, um, is called uh, Some Living Issues. He also wrote a book called The Finality of Christ that Machen also reviewed pretty, pretty critically. Um, but, uh, but again, if you had to put, if the only options were liberal or conservative, Speer would be regarded as a conservative. Um, and so that's why it's really difficult sometimes to figure out the lines within the Presbyterian Church. So here's here are a couple excerpts from uh, one excerpt from um, Machen's review. The issue uh, between Christianity, as set forth in the Bible and in the creeds of the Church, and a non-doctrinal or indifferent modernism, is represented in the Presbyterian Church in the USA by the Auburn Affirmation and is really more or less dominant in most of the large Protestant churches of the world. With regard to that issue, three positions are possible and are actually being taken today. In the first place, one may stand unreservedly for the old faith and unreservedly against the indifferentist tendency in the modern church. In the second place, one may stand unreservedly for modernism and against the old faith, and in third place, one may ignore the seriousness of the issue and seek 
without bringing it to a head, to preserve the undisturbed control of the present organization in the church. It is this last attitude that is represented by the book now under review. Dr. Robert Speer certainly presents himself not as a modernist, but as an adherent of the historic Christian faith. Yet he takes no clear stand in the great issue of the day, but rather adopts an attitude of reassurance and palliation, according high praise and apparently far-reaching agreement to men of every destructive, of very destructive views. It is this palliative or reassuring attitude which we are almost inclined to think constitutes the most serious menace to the life of the church today. It is in some ways doing more harm than clear-sighted modernism can do. The representatives of it are often much further from the faith than they themselves know, and they are leading others much further away than they have been led themselves. Obviously, such a tendency in the church deserves very careful attention from thoughtful men. And then Machen goes on um, to talk, let me just give one example, some specific, uh, a specific quotation that Machen deals with, again, to give a flavor for Machen's criticism of Spear and also a kind of sentimentality that may be present in Spear's work. Machen writes, we cannot pass the other chapters of the book in any sort of detailed review. They contain many things with which we heartily agree, many things, too, which are eloquently and finely said. Thus, on page 118, Dr. Spear points out well and forcibly the unfairness of the charge of narrowness, which is so often brought against evangelical Christianity. And he quotes Spear. Here's Spear. Men will speak tolerantly of liberalistic Christianity or of institutional or sacerdotal or prelatical or papal religion, or of the use of religion religion as a force to control the ignorant. But evangelical Christianity, with its clear doctrinal convictions and its warm religious experience, is narrow. Again, that's Spear writing. And again, Spear goes on. Now let us at once recognize that there is an element of truth in this view. Truth is narrow and exclusive. All truth is so. The search for it, whether in science or religion, involves the rejection of every false and untenable hypothesis. End of Spears' quote. Machen goes on. That is well said indeed. Our central criticism of Dr. Spears is that he does not apply it in his own thinking, teaching, and in his own attitude in the church. Certainly he does not apply it in the present book. Particularly does he fail to apply it in what he says on pages 144 and 141, following with regard to the limits of tolerance. What becomes of the Christian message if the possession of Christian spirit being spelled with a small letter is the essential and sufficient credential? Dr. Spear seems to forget here and at other places that which he himself recognizes, that the world cannot be saved by the loveliness of Christians or by any human goodness, but only by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Certainly the New Testament passages cited in such profusion on page 144 do not all warrant the inclusiveness for which Dr. Spear seems to plead. So, so Machen sees this dichotomy in Spear, seeing on the one hand the narrowness of Christianity and some effort to hold on to the, the gospel, on the other hand failing to apply it within the church, failing to, um, to see uh, how liberals are destroying that gospel. So, the important point here, and then under this, this point about evangelical Presbyterians, is that Machen was not ousted by, really by liberals. It was evangelicals who opposed him and ensured his defeat. Liberalism only triumphed because evangelicals or the so-called conservatives refused to fight and instead fought the conservatives. 
They were interested in peace and unity, but they were not interested in the purity of the church. And that's also part of that. It's the peace, purity, and unity of the church. Which then leads us to 1936 and the, um, his Machen's advice to the 1936 GA, which I guess has been distributed. Um, that Okay. Um, this, is, this is really a wonderful piece that maybe shows Machen's um, uh, skepticism in a way, or cynicism even, but it's also an important critique of, um, of sentimentality. So, remember, the context for this, this piece, which appeared in the Presbyterian Guardian, the first year of the Presbyterian Guardian, um, which was a great magazine, um, unfortunately closed down in 1979. But um, the context is ma- coming up to the General Assembly of 1936, where Machen is going to appeal his trial's decision, and he's trying to offer advice to commissioners, as well as to people who were maybe electing commissioners to go to GA. And so he, he says here, first of all, I have some highlighted places. Um, so first of all, point one, left column on page 68, do not be deceived. The whole program of the General Assembly is carefully planned in such a way as to conceal the re- real issues and give a false impression of faithfulness to the word of God. I do not mean that the deceit is necessarily intentional. So he's not necessarily questioning motives. The men conducting the ecclesiastical machine are no doubt in many instances living in a region of thought and feeling so utterly remote from the great verities of the Christian faith that they have no notion how completely they are diverting attention from those verities in their conduct of the assembly. But the fact remains that the whole program, from whatever motives, is so constructed as to conceal the real condition of the church. So he gives some examples of this. And I'll, let's look at the one on prayer. Point three, the third agency of concealment is prayer. Public prayer is not a, <clears throat> is not a proper means of pushing measures through a deliberative body. When rightly practiced, it is one of the sweetest and most precious privileges of the Christian life. But when misused to shelve important issues or gain an unfair advantage over opponents in debate, it is very objectionable. It is a very objectionable thing. Unfortunately, it's sometimes misused in that way in the General Assemblies of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, meaning that you can pray in a certain way for the outcome of a decision and praying as if everyone believes this without properly regarding that there's a real debate going on in the church. And just to bring my own experience in the Christian Reformed Church, 1992, when Synod decided, first time they decided to let, allow women into office, the, uh, the report in the banner, the magazine of the Christian Reformed Church, said that the whole Synod was bathed in prayer. Well, that sounds very nice, but for those of us who were opposed to that decision, we didn't think it was necessarily bathed in prayer. So, uh, point five on singing. A fifth agency of concealment is the singing of blessed be the tie that binds. That is a fine hymn, very sweet and precious when the love which it expresses is in the heart of, and not merely in, on lips. But at the General Assembly, when it is dragged in at unexpected times, it often marks some particularly vicious and unbrotherly act. Loving words, especially when set to a familiar tune, are, most effective, are the most effective possible disguise for unloving deeds. 
And then finally, to this point seven, which brings us to this idea of sentiment, sentimentality, the false use of sentiment. <clears throat> a seventh instrument of concealment is the false use of perfectly worthy sentiment for partisan ends. In 1933, there was a contest regarding the Board of Foreign Missions. The Assembly's Committee on Foreign Missions brought in a majority report favoring the policy of the board and a minority report opposing that policy. And this, the two paragraphs on your handout earlier are from that report. Now, every year it is the custom to read the names of the missionaries who have died during the year. The assembly rises in, res in respect to the honored dead and is led in prayer. It is a solemn moment. Where do you suppose that solemn service was put in? Well, it was tagged onto the majority report from the committee. Then after the solemn hush of that scene, the minority report was heard, the minority report being the conservative report. Could anything have been more utterly unfair? The impression was inevitably made that the minority report was in some sort hostile to that honoring of the pious dead. The sacred memory of those missionaries was used to put across highly partisan report whitewashing a modernist program which some of them might have thoroughly condemned. Unfortunately, they were not there to defend themselves against the outrageous misuse of their names. There is urgent need of a reform of the Assembly's program at that point. The honor paid to the departed missionaries should be completely divorced from the report of the Assembly's Committee on the Boards. That is, the, that is only one instance of the way in which at the Assembly legitimate sympathy is used to accomplish partisan ends. Very cruel and heartless measures are sometimes pushed through under the cover of sympathetic tears. So, <clears throat> which then leads to the final uh, point here about true sentiment and um, the sermon that Machen um, delivered at the First General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. As you probably could figure out by now, Machen's trial... His, his suspension, I mean, the verdict was upheld at the General Assembly of 1936 in Syracuse, New York. I don't remember the exact day, but within a few days later, the OPC held its first General Assembly, June 11th, 1936. Um, and all Orthodox Presbyterians should, should, should do something to celebrate June 11th, 1936. And Machen was elected the first moderator of, of the OPC, although at the time it wasn't called the OPC. It's a long story. It was called the PCA, actually, originally and uh, show how vindictive the PCUSA was. They actually sued the Orthodox Presbyterian Church over their name, and the OPC finally had to come up with its name, its new name, by, by 1939. But it's a long, complicated story. It's a very fascinating one. But, so Machen preached a sermon, which is the custom of the moderator, and the title of his sermon was Constraining Love. So here he is critiquing sentiment or sentimentality, and yet preaches a sermon about, about love. And so I want to read from the, toward the end of that sermon where Machen talks about um, what love will or will not let Orthodox Presbyterians do. <clears throat> this morning, we, a little branch of his church universal, are gathered for the first time together around his table. Christ, of course, is, is the uh, third-person pronoun here. We shall go forth from the service into the deliberations of this assembly and then into the varied work of the church. If we remember what this service commemorates, 
There are certain things which we shall be constrained by Christ's love not to do. We shall be constrained, for example, not to weaken in the stand which we have taken for the sake of Christ. How many movements have begun bravely like this one and then have been deceived by Satan, have been deceived by Satan into belittling controversy, condoning sin and error, seeking favor from the world or from a worldly church, substituting a worldly urbanity for Christian love. May Christ's love indeed constrain us that we may not fall thus. We shall be constrained in the second place from seeking unworthily our own advantage or preferment and from being jealous of the advantage or preferment of our brethren. May Christ's love indeed constrain us that we fall not into such faults as these. We shall be constrained in the third place from stifling discussion for the sake of peace and from, as has been said, shelving important issues and movements of silent prayer, moments of silent prayer. May Christ's love constrain us from such a misuse of the sacred and blessed privilege of prayer. May Christ's love prevent us from doing anything to hinder our brethren from giving legitimate expression to the convictions of their minds and hearts. Which is the reason why, for those of you who haven't gone to a general assembly, and if you do young men training for the ministry, do end up going, you never call the question. You never try to end debate. Um, OPs always let it debate, sometimes amazingly so, but, and confoundingly so, but anyway. Machen goes on, We shall be constrained, in short, from succumbing to many dangers which always beset a movement such as this. Christ's love will save us from such dangers. <clears throat> but Christ's love will save us from more, will restrain us from... Uh, more than evil. It will lead us also into good. It will do more than prevent us from living unto ourselves. It will also lead us to live unto him. What a wonderful door, open door God has placed before the church of today. A pagan world, weary and sick, often distrusting its own modern gods. A saving gospel strangely entrusted to us unworthy messengers. A divine book with unused resources of glory and power. Ah, what a marvelous opportunity What a privilege to proclaim not some partial system of truth, but the full glorious system which God has revealed in his word and which is summarized in the wonderful standards of our faith. What a privilege to get those hallowed instruments in which that truth is summarized down from the shelf and write them in patient instruction by the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the tablets of the children's hearts. What a privilege to present our historic standards in all their fullness in the pulpit and at the teacher's desk and in the Christian home. What a privilege to do that for one reason that those standards present, not a man-made creed, but what God has told us in his holy word. What a privilege to proclaim that same system of divine truth to the unsaved. What a privilege to carry the message of the cross unshackled by by compromising associations to all the world. What a privilege to send it to foreign lands. What a privilege to proclaim it to the souls of people who sit in nominally Christian churches and starve for lack of the bread of life. Oh yes, what a privilege and what a joy, my brethren. Shall we lose that joy for any selfishness or jealousy? Shall we lose it for any of the sins into which every one of us, without exception, is prone to fall? Only one thing can prevent us from losing it, my brethren. Only one thing can bestow it upon us in all its fullness. That one thing is the love of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the love that we celebrate as we sit this morning around the table of our Lord. So... um, Machen was not adverse to sentiment. He believed perfectly that sentiment was a good thing, especially the love of Christ for his church and the love of the church for their Savior. So that um, concludes...
this lesson. I guess if I'm, I, I can't take questions. We're out of, we're out of time. So let me close with prayer. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to listen to past programs or other resources, please visit us online at reformedforum.org. If you would like to read some new resources from Daryl Hart, please visit him online at oldlife.org. If you would like to get a hold of us, mail us at mail at reformedforum.org. Twitter us at Reformed Forum, or you can even call us at 440-97-FORUM. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.